great God. This morning we're going to attempt to answer biblically one of the great philosophical questions about why we exist. You're familiar, as I know you've been going through in Sunday school, the catechism, which begins with the first question and frames it as, what is the chief end of man? What is the reason for our existence? And you likely know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our text this morning is from Romans. And in the book of Romans, a very familiar book, you have really 11 chapters of the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God and laying out God's grand plan of redemption and the gospel and how it applies and relates to the aspects of our life. And it's a very doctrinal treatment of expounding the nuance of the gospel. And then in chapter 11, at the end, it comes to a crescendo of doxology. That all of that doctrine was to lead them and lead us to this place where we see and worship God for who he is and what he has done. And then, as you know, Romans chapter 12 then applies that to our duty. That I beseech you, by the mercies of God, live that out. This is the Apostle's common approach. If you look at the book of Ephesians, it gives God's eternal purpose for three chapters and lays that out and explains it. And as you come to the end of chapter 3, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly of all that we ask or think, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. It's a doxological, worshipful reality of God's purpose. And then chapter 4 and verse 1 says, I beseech you, Therefore is the prisoner of the Lord to walk worthy of this calling. And then three chapters of explaining our duty of how we should live. So I want to look at this doxological statement and focus in on verse 36. But let me pick it up in verse 32, or 33, excuse me. Again, the context is he's just laid out God's plan of salvation and redemption. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? For of him, excuse me, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again, Here's our text, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever, amen. Kind of a weird place to hit the amen, right? Unless you understand that division we talked about. But the reality that this text gives us is that everything is about him. It's not about us. It is about everything comes from him, through him, and to him are all things. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6 says it this way. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. See, the opposite of that, would you agree with me that that is not the air that we breathe in our society today? What we breathe in is the contrast of that, which puts man in that position. The technical term for it is humanism. I'll give you a definition. Humanism is an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human need, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Have you seen that at all? Instead of having a divine perspective, the verse 36 relates that all things are divine issues. Everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that happens needs to be viewed with a biblical worldview that is approaching it as this is for the glory of God. That everything in our life is filtered through that reality of bringing glory to God. <clears throat> the proof text for the catechism is 1 Corinthians 10.30. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. This is not just a principle in Scripture. This is the principle of Scripture and should be the guiding principle of our lives. This isn't just a cliche, bumper sticker statement. This is the center, the core of the Christian life. This is why in the five solas, solo de gloria, the glory of God alone. That is to be our consuming passion, as some have said. That is to be the central tenet. That is to be the focus of everything because of him and through him and to him are all things. It is all about him. And it's not about us. I have this quoted somewhere later. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us be glory, but to you and your name be glory. Not unto us. We should have an absolute disdain of the glory being attributed to us and quickly deflect that back to our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> the Bible claims exclusive authority and absolute truth for this answer. That philosophers can scratch their chins and, and debate and wonder about, but the Bible in this simple verse gives us the absolute answer. Here it is. That it's about Him. If you truly want a silver bullet to apply in every situation. There's very few of them. Often it requires wisdom and application of truths that Scripture gives us in tension. But there's one truth that doesn't have any tension. There is no question. Why do we exist and what is this whole thing about? The glory of God. I was reading as we were talking in Sunday school a little bit. I was roaming about the cabin. But in Romans 9, verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. What is the purpose of the reprobate? And what is the purpose of the elect? To bring glory to God. That is what it is all about. In every instance, it is the silver bullet. Some of you may not have grown up with the Lone Ranger, 
the silver bullet is the key, the answer to any problem. This isn't just the reason for your individual existence. This is the reason for the existence of everything. If you agree with me, we can move on from this. I just want to lay that clear foundation. All things were created by him and for him. The reason that Harbor Church exists is for the glory of God. The reason that you exist is for the glory of God. Years ago, I had a mentor who described what he called the buttonhole principle. Have I ever shared the buttonhole principle with you? Well, brace yourselves. Really profound. The the buttonhole principle is this. If you've ever raised young boys, you know it is is an act of Congress to get them to button their shirt appropriately. Because they just start buttoning, and they look like a disheveled mess to the horror of all mothers. But the key to getting, I remember distinctly as a child, my mother explaining this to me, and I have since explained it to all of my, all of my especially boys, and they can't grasp the concept. But if you get the first buttonhole in the right hole, all the rest of the buttons will line up. But if you get that first button a little cockeyed and you put the second buttonhole on the first button, it doesn't matter what you do, it is not going to look right. This is the first buttonhole. This is the key. If you get this right in your life, the glory of God, you could probably put the gospel in there really close. Maybe that's the second buttonhole. If you get that right, the reason for your existence is being fulfilled. And if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter how you tug and, and, and contort and whatever else that you do, you miss the whole point of it all. And the final exam of our lives This will be the single question. This is how our lives will be evaluated and judged. Did you glorify God? What in your life glorified God? And everything else is vanity. That is the absolute. This principle, Jesus in his first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Very familiar scriptures. What was the point that he established very early? Where he tells us that we're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing. Isn't that encouraging? But to be trodden, cast out, trodden underfoot of men, you are the light of the world. If you're the light of the world, don't put it under a bushel or... But we put it on a, on a candlestick that others may see it. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men. And I think the key there is that so. The way you do your work and the way your light shines, that they see your good works. And the way that you do them, their response is to glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the response. That is our purpose. That is the reason for our existence. My proposition to you this morning is that there is an opportunity for every believer, every day, and in every task to glorify God. That should be good news. This isn't just for unusually gifted people people in positions of prominence. This is for every man, woman, and child in this room. This is for every person on this earth that every day you have an opportunity to glorify God. Because it's about everything. So everything has this attached to it. What do I mean by that? 
I mean that you can glorify God in cleaning your room. And all the parents said, Amen. Meaning there is a way to clean your room where you cram those clothes under the bed, you find a closet and cram it in there, that you stick it in your brother's dresser drawers. Not that I've seen this movie. We have a principle in our house, if you don't work, you don't eat. Clean your room and then come to breakfast. So I've seen this movie repeated time and again. Every day we repeat the course. But there is a way for Father to come, open the door to, I have, I think it's four boys in one room. They all just pile in there in a big mess. But there is a way that I can open that door and say, glory to God in the highest. That is a clean room. That is what I was asking for. And that little child can glorify God by their obedience to their father and just making sure that their room is clean. You can glorify God by doing the dishes. Or you can bring shame and reproach to the name of Christ on how you do the dishes. You can take out the trash. You can glorify God in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in the workplace. I, I propose to you, you can glorify God in the way you brush your teeth. Is with gratitude of thanking God for every tooth in your head. Flossing that thing every day, brushing those teeth for two minutes in such a way that you're thankful and glorifying God and, and giving me teeth. And the key to being able to glorify God of every believer every day and every task is to have an audience of one. To have an audience of one. That my desire in this is that I believe that God has numbered the hairs on my head, that he's intricately involved with every thought, word, and deed of my life, and I can glorify him whether anybody else sees it. Do you believe that? that is this not what we try to teach our children, that there's a day when mom and dad aren't going to be there, and it's not about mom and dad? It is about your Father in Heaven who sees and knows everything that you do, and your mom and dad could die tomorrow, and that wouldn't change your purpose and reason for existence, which is to glorify your Father which is in Heaven. You do not have to give an account to your parents in eternity. But you will give an account to your Father which is in Heaven. And it's very easy to think, well, he's not concerned about he is concerned about the very hairs of your head are numbered. And you can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And that you can glorify God whether anybody else sees it, whether it's ever verbalized, whether you take a picture and post it on social media, you can glorify your Father which is in heaven. And he receives it. He's not incorrigible. You remember in the Gospels, a, a poor woman wiggles through the crowd, drops two mites in the offering plate, and God says, he sees that. And he is glorified in that two mites. Not because he, he was running short of financial means. He's made it all. It's all his. We're not giving anything back to him that he didn't already have. And this is where stewardship comes in, but that's another message. The question that should be asked frequently and daily, and I would, I would plead with you to ingrain this into your mind and heart, that it become the very air that you breathe every day, that my Consuming passion is for the glory of God. And so when you're doing menial tasks, when you're embracing conflict and suffering and trials, the question that you want to repeat to yourself 
a thousand times every day, how can I glorify God in this? That's the point. So when you're facing conflict, suffering, decisions, trials, difficulty, it doesn't matter what the issue is. The question you can ask yourself is, okay, here's the situation. Now how do I glorify God in this? You realize that eliminates a lot of the potential options? Is that people see the way I handle that situation and not give glory to me? You remember when Paul and Silas were beaten for the gospel's sake? In Philippi? Even though they were a Roman citizen and it was unlawful to do that? And at midnight when they're down in the, I'm sure it was a wonderful place to be, in the inner prison, started singing praises to God. And what was the response of the jailer? Glory to God, I need to be saved. Whatever you have, I need that. This can do wonders for our evangelism. Because when people, here's the operating principle that everyone in our society has. I've yet to meet someone who doesn't. When they find out that you are a religious person, a Christian, a pastor, a church member, it doesn't matter what it is. They believe from the bottom of their heart that the reason that you think you're a Christian and that you're going to heaven is because you think you're better than them. They are ignorant of the gospel and they believe that you have a, a, a legal understanding and that I'm good and they're bad. And so they despise when they see good things because they're keeping score. That is the basis on which they think they're going to please God. And we can reiterate and reiterate and reiterate as we sing about and can it be and how there's no condemnation. Why? Because of Christ. But what, what will get to the heart of unbelievers, of those in your family, friends, and co-workers, is when they see you do something that they know in their heart they could never do. And you're not doing it because you're just good from the core. You're doing that because you want God to be glorified. And it strikes them. And they don't know what to do with it. And usually that entails conflict. Usually that includes humility. Usually that includes somebody receiving an injustice because they know how they would respond to that injustice as the Apostle Paul and Silas. He knew what defense he would be conjuring up in his mind. I'm a Roman citizen and that wasn't right and I'm countersuing and I'm taking this to the top Supreme Court if I have to, buddy. But when, as Peter says, when you receive suffering and you bear it patiently, this is acceptable with God. He's not unrighteous to forget your labor of love and what you're doing for his name's sake. And so this needs to be the all-pervasive, consuming reality of our lives is how in this situation, I don't care what it is and how bad it is, is how can I glorify God in this? And if you have the answer to that question, you have clear direction on how to move forward. It's an audience of one. Just two things this morning. What does it mean to glorify God? What does that mean? You probably are familiar with Piper's statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Feel that God is all satisfying. The psalmist said it this way, Because the motive is to magnify God, that people would have high thoughts of God. That they would look at what we're doing and say, glory to God. And let us exalt his name together. To magnify means to raise in estimation, to exalt 
to extol, to elevate, to make great. So we sow through our words, and as we sow, as we have this mindset, Source of the glory of God. God created man after his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, the dominion over the creatures. We were created to spread the glory of God over all the earth as his image bearers, and sin is the failure to do that. As we know that all things are of him, and he created all things. Evolution is nothing more than an attempt to steal God's glory for his creation of the heavens and the earth. Imagine that your magnum opus, the greatest thing that you've ever done, and somebody makes it their life purpose to say, no, you didn't. You didn't write that. You didn't paint that. You didn't do that. You're an imposter and you stole it. You're stealing the credit. problem is, is that we sin, we have a tendency to magnify ourselves. This is what the Bible calls vainglory. Empty, worthless, which is defined as an inordinate pride and esteem of one's own performance or achievement. It is empty pride. Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. As I said, because of God's omniscience, God is aware of everything. He recognizes and sees every single thing that you do. Can you fathom that? I mean, we're talking billions of people. Nonstop, never slumbers nor sleeps, never unaware of anything that is going on. Right? Because we always have that concern that when we're in the workplace that we do something that the boss sees us. Well, there's a part of that that maybe is sinful, but there's a part of that like, hey, I want them to know that I'm, you know, faithful. There's that child playing baseball. I have these children and they are consumed. They want to make sure that dad and Mom, but especially dad, better see that. So if they get a hit while they're running to first base, they want to see, did dad see that we, I got that hit? Listen, your heavenly father sees every single thing that you do. And every breath that you take, you can glorify him and he sees it. Every single thing. And he, he, he is pleased. Especially he's pleased with his son. This is my beloved son. God is not incorrigible or difficult. What does that mean to magnify God? It's just to do your best. Take the ability that God gives you. He knows what ability he's given you. You don't have to compete with anyone else. There's no competition. The question is, do your best. I don't expect the same out of my 5-year-old as I do out of my 20-year-old. I just expect their best. We have that saying around our house. When somebody does a just an I have I have a tendency to sarcasm and try to go with Gabby's. But when somebody does something, they want to go somewhere, they want a privilege, okay, let me go check your room. And then they're <laughs> sitting there just hoping that dad is blind or dumb, I guess. And I just look at it and I just say, Is that your best? I mean, is that your best? Would you like us to Take pictures and show the other siblings as an example. Put it on social media. Man, look at this. Not asking you to do it as well as somebody else could do it. I'm asking. We had this. I used this in the 
as I was an administrator of a school, teachers would do the same thing, and I would just say, is that your best? Because if that's your best, then okay. And that is all good until they turn that around on you and say, is that your best? Right? That's not my best. But then consider in Philippians 2 a familiar text. The example we have of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the text. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Why? John 17, Garden of Gethsemane. Why? To glorify his Father. That there was no limit to his obedience. If this is how my father is glorified, then that's my job. Even the death of the cross. How does God respond to that? The father, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. That's a pretty exhaustive list. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That everything that Christ did worked to that end. You remember when Christ was crucified, Roman centurion, most definitely had seen a number of crucifixions, was compelled to glorify God in the way he died. Matthew 27, 54, Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Because they watched Him. Secondly, there's much mention of the glory of God and biblical support. Right? You can trace a biblical theology of following this concept through Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 and verse 20 said this, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. That is the sole reason for my existence. In Colossians 1 and verse 15, the Scripture says, who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, and He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, underline this, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in all things he is magnified, he is exalted, he is praised, that everyone looks to him as the just recipient. Not only Paul, we see it in John the Baptist. That familiar passage in John 3, in verse 30, what did John say? 
they came to him and they're trying to stir up, you know, he's making more disciples. And, and what did John say? Well, here's the principle I've lived my life on. He must increase. And I must decrease. That's the over-consuming philosophy of my ministry is I want him to increase and I want me to decrease. And Jesus said of men born of woman, there is not a greater than John the Baptist. Because he grasped this concept. He must increase. You're telling, you're telling me that he's making more disciples than me and you think I'm going to have a problem with that? I took every one of my disciples and said, there he is, go follow him. Consider how Jesus instructed his disciples to pray in Matthew 6.1. His disciples asked him, Father, teach us to pray. And you know the Lord's Prayer. Pray after this manner, our Father which art in heaven. What's the next phrase? Hallowed be your name. This is what prayer is. That our desire is that God's name be exalted. Now think about this in relationship to our prayers. Our primary desire in prayer should be the glory of God. took all of our individual collective prayers. We took all of your prayers. Okay? We got a big bag of them. The scripture says he collects them like a, in a bottle of our tears. So let's just say we took all of your prayers for the last year that you have offered. And we had a filter. And all we were filtering is everything that you prayed for the glory of God goes through. And everything that is not for the glory of God, we just... That would be the prayers that are designed and offered the way God has instructed us to pray. What does James tell us? Why don't... why We have not because we ask not. We ask and we don't receive, why? Because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own desires and not for the glory of God. You remember thinking of another text came to mind I can't get it. Maybe next time. Even issues of conscience. I quoted 1 Corinthians. Whether you eat or drink, the context there is meat offered to idols, all of these issues of conscience that Paul writes for three chapters through Corinthians about how do you resolve issues of conscience of what should I do and what should I not do? Well, here's your silver bullet. What would be to the glory of God? Not my personal preference, not my idea. What would glorify God? That's what I want to do. It has a way of just simplifying. Peter says in relationship to suffering, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, Dear beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then over in chapter 4 and verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Right? Imagine, where's... I like to use Kevin when I'm here. Where's Kevin? Oh, he's in prison. Right? That would kind of be a, whoa. Why? Oh, because he's a Christian. Oh, okay, well, never mind then. Not a big deal. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 
If I suffer for the glory of God, so be it. One of my favorite characters, Nebuchadnezzar. Turn over to Daniel 4. Almost done. Daniel 4. You have to love Nebuchadnezzar, this, this guy. Probably the greatest dictator the world's ever known as far as the extent of his empire, his control. The extent of his empire is so great that God has him, curses him, has him deposed, eating grass like an ox, growing feathers and claws like a bird for seven years, and nobody dared take his throne because if he came back, they knew what would happen. Daniel has a dream. Daniel 4, 27. And Daniel says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Because Daniel had this vision that he was going to be cut down. And then look at verse 33. Nebuchadnezzar was walking through his kingdom and he was considering all Babylon and all that he's done. And you remember the scene. And his, his statement was, is not this great Babylon? You know how he finishes that sentence? That I have built. And God said, that's it. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. God said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to cut it out. Daniel saw the vision of a stump. They wouldn't remove the stump. They wouldn't get the stump grinder out and get rid of it. No, we're going to leave the stump, and then that stump's going to regrow. And at the end of the days, this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. And my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou at the same time my reason returned unto me this is reasonable and for the glory of my kingdom my honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now here's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and you can underline this, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abate. We could go through Ephesians. I won't take the time this morning. But God's purpose is according to the counsel of His own will for His own glory. He has foreordained whatever comes to pass. First Corinthians, you know the passages. Whether you eat or drink. Well, let me just read that one. It's a shorter one. First Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you and which ye have of God and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. One more text. Revelation 5. Great passage. And verse 9. Here's the scene. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I love that. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let me close with this. I mentioned earlier that God is satisfied with your best. But I want to clarify that. Because if you are outside of Christ, not a single thought, word, or deed that you have ever done has ever pleased God. To attempt to please God in yourself is to say that Christ did not need to die and that you could please God on your own. In contrast, when you consider the Lord Jesus Christ, every thought, every word, and every deed that Christ did was pleasing to his Father. And so the essence and the message of the gospel is commanding you to trust in the work of Christ alone to be counted to your account and your sin and disobedience to be counted to him on the cross. Believer, is this the conscience, conscious and dominant thought of your heart? Is this the air that you breathe? That every moment of every day, this needs to be the question, is how can I glorify God in this? I don't say that to overwhelm you. I say that to give you practical, daily moment-by-moment instruction of what is going on here. Well, I know what I need to do. I need to glorify God in this. And so I would encourage you to prioritize and look at your life and say, hey, what is an area in my life that is not glorifying to God? I don't have to take them all, but let me just find one area. Maybe... Children in this room are so under conviction that they're going to go home this afternoon and clean their room to the glory of God and the praise of his parents and the whole church. You know, I can remember a day we had, back in the day, special services, midweek services, and a man was preaching on obey your parents. I was probably 16 years old. And before we had gone to church that night, my mom had said to me, John, would you take the trash out? And I gave her one of my common responses. I will. I will. I have every intention of doing that. I just have a few priorities that are just a little higher on the list. And as soon as that gets to the top, boom, mom, it's going to be done. Well, guess what happened? It never made it to the top of the stack. And I went to this meeting, and this man is preaching on obeying your parents, and I was so convicted as a 16-year-old high schooler that my mom just told me to take out the trash. A very simple action, and I couldn't do it. So when we got home that night, I didn't say a word to anybody. I got out of that car, I walked in the back door, got the trash, and took it out and put it where it needed to go, to the glory of God. My mom didn't even know 
that God was doing in my heart. He began to pay attention. All of a sudden, the trash was getting taken out. The first time I asked, I didn't exactly master the lesson, so when I graduated college, I got to start over. <laughs> Move back in. Mom says, take the trash out. We're going to take, bless God, we're going to take the trash out. And so I plead with you, let this be the air that you breathe, that in every day, in every action, you, every task, no matter what it is, you have an opportunity to fulfill the reason for your existence, which is to glorify God. Let's pray. God, help us. We acknowledge how radically, woefully, desperately short we fall of this. We pray for your help. I pray for those outside of Christ that they would realize the bankruptcy that they have of inability to pay a single debt. That they would see the abundance of the riches in Christ who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Help them to see that this morning. And God, for your children, help us. Help us as we live in distressing, discouraging, unusual times. Help us to have a passion for your glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. We ask it in Christ's name. very practical application of the Word of God. Let's stand to sing our final hymn. It's